So if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, we're going to turn to John chapter 2. And I kind of, well, it was highlighted to me and I took up the suggestion. If all the scripture journals we've uh, distributed are in the NIV translation, I should probably stop preaching from the ESV translation. So as of today, I've done it. Um, if I do make any mistakes and quote the wrong translation, I apologise. Um, but we're going to be jumping into the first miracle that we see of Jesus uh, in John chapter 2, in Jesus turning water into wine. So we're going to read the first 11 verses uh, of John chapter 2. And it reads this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. Yet his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim and he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the, first, eh, the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the passage we're going to take some time and explore this morning. We rejoined John's Gospel three days uh, from where we last picked up. We have six disciples who have now trusted in Jesus, uh, who have committed themselves to a lifetime of following him, and we have Jesus' mother, Mary. And we sit, of course, in a privileged position, don't we, that when we read the Gospels, we read Scripture in its entirety. We know what comes after this. We know that this is the beginning of Jesus' journey, that he would go on to do lots more, that he would be crucified uh, and rise again and ascend to heaven. But I think it's important that as we come to the miraculous works of Jesus, we just remember that the disciples were not that privileged. That for the disciples, all of this was being unveiled in front of their eyes. And I think we run the risk sometimes of, of taking our privilege of New Testament Christians for granted. That we just think, yeah, we know Jesus did great things, but the important bit comes later. The important bit's the death and resurrection. But what I'm looking forward to is in these next few weeks and months is really uh, taking each encounter with Jesus as they come. So we meet here with Jesus with the first miraculous sign. Jesus is about 30 years old. And there are only, interestingly, 35 miracles recorded in the gospel. We find 20 in Matthew, 18 in Mark, 20 in Luke, and only 7 in John. And this is the first of them all. And chapter 2 really starts for us this journey that will go on until the end of chapter 10, that is Jesus' ministry and his encounters with people. 
we will see his signs and we will see him at work and we'll see the people that this just really rubs against. We'll see the people that follow Jesus for the purposes of controversy, that want nothing really to do with him except to tear him apart and bring him down and ultimately crucify him. So let us at first set the scene for where we find this first miracle. And it is, of course, a wedding. A wedding feast. An utterly glorious time. And it's interesting that we start here, but there are two things about Jewish weddings that Baptists aren't very well known for, and that is dancing and wine. Because that is predominantly what their weddings were all about. They were joyous occasions. They were really the biggest deal that you would ever find in a couple's life. In a small town like Cana, these parties were the parties of the year. They could last up to a week. For the duration of this celebration, the bride and the groom are like king and queen. It's all about them. And no wonder, because the groom had to pay for everything. That's how these worked. No wonder everybody loved them, because you turn up and you get everything you can eat and drink for nothing. And the couple, in return, were loved and celebrated. They were showered with gifts and the guests were treated. What is not to love? And because the responsibility of this wedding would rest with the groom, to run out of anything at all was an absolute no-no. Interestingly, there's evidence from the time that if a groom could not supply all the needs of the wedding feast, he was open to a lawsuit. You'd have to be pretty sad, I would say, to sue the groom. Maybe it happened, I don't know. But, but there was a right to do so. That's how big the cultural expectation was. And I just love as we set the scene here, that it makes a really important point for us that this is the scene in which we find Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't a recluse. Jesus accepted invitations to social events. Even though he knew his enemies at times were going to follow him and would use the things he was doing and saying to accuse him, Jesus entered into everyday normal experiences like we have. And he blessed them with his presence. Jesus didn't just stick to his own. He had his six by now. He had his mother as well. He didn't just go, I'm going to stick with this lot because I like them and they like me and it's safe here. Jesus could have easily done so. But he goes and here we find our saviour at this wedding feast, accompanied by his mother and his six disciples. Maybe it was them that caused the problem. Maybe it was this addition of seven people at this wedding in a town like Cana that was uh, causing a strain on the resources. But here we find them. So two points this morning, very simply, is the problem and the solution. And we find, of course, this problem in verses 2 to 5. And that simply is the problem. They have no more wine. And this is a genuine travesty. This is a serious problem. This wasn't obviously as simple as legging it to Tesco and grabbing a few more bottles. Because ultimately, this is probably all the groom could afford. There probably wasn't a pile of money sitting there that he would just go, go and take this and just go and buy more wine. Go and get as much wine as you possibly can. But what it meant is if he ran out of wine and couldn't satisfy and entertain the guests that were in front of him, they were going to start out their married life with some real problems. 
This was just such a great social taboo. It's just something you wouldn't do. And in a, in a shame culture, that is definitely not the way you would want to start your marriage. Wine. There's a lot of views on what is meant when we read of the word wine. And ultimately it isn't grape juice. It is a fermented, it is an alcoholic wine. It is pressed grapes in a similar way that we make it today. Yes, the ancient world would dilute it with water, so it would become the strength of something like beer that we would have today. And a full strength wine like we have would be called a strong drink, and it wouldn't be something that would socially be drunk. But wine is used in the Old Testament as a symbol for joy. We find it, Psalm 104, verse 15, wine that gladdens the heart. Or Isaiah 55 verse 1, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. I'm going to come to that a little bit later on where we're just going to look at what it means that wine represents joy. And as we meet them here, clearly Mary and and Jesus are somehow important to this couple because they're invited, they're there. And ultimately, they must have been close enough that Mary felt a need to share the problem. But the first question is, why on earth did Mary bother to tell Jesus about this? Why did she bother to say to Jesus, they have no more wine? I don't think she was moaning. I don't think she was just happening to sit next to Jesus and just said... There's mints, there's no more wine left. What are we going to do? I don't think she was just moaning. But likewise, I don't think she was sitting there expecting the miraculous. Because this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I don't think she's sitting there going, Jesus can turn anything into wine. He's going to do it. He's going to provide. Because I don't think we, I don't think Mary has a reason for her expectations to be so high at this point. But I think that most likely Mary knew of Jesus' resourcefulness. She had seen it in her own life. Because ultimately, uh, Scripture doesn't tell us, but tradition does, that that, uh, Mary by this point is a widow. Joseph doesn't appear on the scene again uh, from when Jesus was past the age of 12. And by this point, uh, especially from Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus isn't just the carpenter's son anymore, but he is the carpenter. So it looks like that as, as, the, as the responsibility for a widow's finances would sit on the sun, it appears that is what's going on here. That Mary depended upon Jesus' work. That the firstborn son had that level of responsibility. So of course, Jesus would have had to have had great resourcefulness in providing for the family. And I guess it makes sense in this context that Mary then tells him there is no more wine. Because she knows that he solves problems. And he says, dear woman, why do you involve me? It's a courteous response. It's not quite as harsh as it sounds. But it's quite formal. It's more like a mom or something like that. He's trying to put a bit of formality. It's not really as as a son would speak to a mother. It's funnily enough, similar words Jesus speaks on the cross to John eh, about his mother eh, in John 19. But he's being deeply respectful. But what he's doing is he's distancing himself here from his mum. 
And what Jesus is doing, and the reason he goes back to his mum with this, is he's saying that at the beginning of his ministry, he has the utter freedom in his sovereignty, without any human advice or agenda or manipulation, to do as he so pleases. Jesus undoubtedly loved his earthly mother. But his intent and his purposes would not be influenced by her. And here as he embarks on this ministry and the signs and wonders that we see from Jesus. It must have been really hard for Mary. She gave birth to him. She nursed him. She taught him to walk. She will have taught him the basic life skills. She will have relied upon him as provider. But now that he is entering into the purpose of his coming to earth, everything, even down to his family ties, came second. I think of that discussion that Jesus has in Matthew chapter 8. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own. Come on, follow me, I come first. It wouldn't have been terribly consistent for Jesus, would it? If he put the opinions and, and the thoughts of his mother before his own when he tells frequently and consistently everybody else, come and follow me, drop everything, follow me. Mary's view of Jesus is changing. She's no longer viewing her son as, as the way that mothers view sons. And what's a really important point for us here, as we look at this encounter of Mary, is what it shows us that even Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, has to approach him like every other person. Mary has to approach Jesus, beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was no backdoor access for Mary to Jesus. It applies here. And it continues to this day. There is no backdoor access for anybody to Jesus. There is no backdoor access to Jesus through Mary. She is just like everybody else. And her next remark is fascinating in verse chapter 5. As she turns to the servants, she says, do whatever he tells you. After everything Jesus has just said, why on earth does she go to the servants and say this? Well, she's displaying her faith. Because she is completely content to leave this problem with Jesus. She's completely content to give it to Jesus and just leave it there. Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and he pushes back on that. But she responds with faith. And because of that, her faith is honoured. I like models. I like easy ways of thinking about things. And this is the first one. This is Mary's problem-solving method. You've got a problem. You take it to Jesus. And you trust him with it. I won't ask you to put your hand up if you have any problems in your life. Because I'm sure we have many. We've all got problems. Whether it's relationships or finances or stress or our work, whether it's our mental health, whether it's insecurities, uncertainties or stresses, we all have problems. 
Some are more private than others, and their problems are not known to anybody else. But we all have problems. And sometimes we do everything that we can to try and get rid of our problems without giving them to Jesus. Do you know, we, we give this to our Sunday school children and our teenagers faithfully. Go, faithfully, go to Jesus first. Take everything to him. Don't make him last. Don't try everything that you can to solve your problems. Then take it to Jesus. Still hard, isn't it? It is still so difficult to take everything to Jesus first. And really, it's because we love to try and fix things. We love to try and fix problems. But what was the first thing that Mary did? She took it to Jesus. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for this example. Servants, just do as he tells you. It's with him now. And just leave it there. Friends, would we leave our problems with Jesus? And you notice that what I've not written here is problem, take it to Jesus, it will be fixed. Because we're not saying Jesus is some kind of genie that you take your finances to Jesus and all of a sudden you're rich. We're not saying that we take uh, mental health issues to Jesus and they are fixed. I'm not saying take uh, anything at all, the stresses and anxieties of life to Jesus and they are fixed. But what we do is we take them to Jesus and we trust them with we trust him with them. We give them to him. We commit them into his hands and we trust him. Why? Because Jesus is with us in the midst of our problems. We are never alone, despite how big and great and scary and overwhelming our problems may be. We take our problems to Jesus and we trust them with, we trust him with them. We don't pray believing that the outcome will be what I want it to be. But we pray and we believe that Jesus will give us peace that transcends all understanding, that he will uphold us in the midst of whatever we face. Will every one of my earthly problems be fixed by Jesus? No, it won't. But I know that he is with me in the midst of all of it. Problem, take it to Jesus. Trust him. So let's look at Jesus' solution to this problem. I'll just read verses 6 to 11. Uh, 6 to 10, sorry. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Big problem. Mary takes it to Jesus, trusts it through faith and leaves it with him. So we have six stone jars. 
20 to 30 gallons, that's something ludicrous like 500 to 800 liters of wine. That's like a thousand bottles. An incredible amount of wine. And one thing I'd never really thought of before this week is what these jars were used for. I'd always just kind of assumed that these were the empty wine wine jugs being filled up with water and then becoming wine. But there's great significance in these jars. Because in in the context of this wedding, they may have been used for hand washing, to ceremonially wash uh, the utensils, things that are in the wedding party. But, But what this represents is the jars... The the ceremonial washing jars represent the old law. They represent the Jewish customs because that's literally what they were. And Jesus was coming to fill them with something better. There is change coming. And the change is greater than we could possibly imagine. If, If Bruce said Christ is changing the water of Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. Jesus is here and there is great symbolism in amongst what he is doing here. A sample of this water is then taken to the master of the banquet. And somewhere between them being filled up and them being delivered, it becomes wine. It's given to the master and through the divine sovereign hand of our Lord Jesus Christ, this water is turned into wine. The master of the banquet didn't have a clue where this came from. He didn't have a clue what was going on. So he goes and speaks to the groom. And I think he's, he's quite jovial in his conversation with him. He's basically saying, oh, everybody else. So bring out the good stuff, then bring out the cheap stuff. But not you. You just keep giving us good stuff. You don't bring out the 15 quid bottle of wine and then bring out the Echo Falls later. You keep it good. And you give us good stuff all the time. And I can't imagine what's going on in the groom's head just now. He's just thinking, where on earth does this all come from? I've got no more money. I've got no more wine. I've got nothing else to give. But yet somehow we've just found a thousand bottles of wine. The social expectation on this groom at this point, because he knew about it, must have been nearly consuming him. It must have filled him with fear. How dare he run out of supplies? How dare you bring shame on your marriage? The wine is gone. What will we do? And Jesus provides the wine. Not any wine, but exceptional wine. Superior wine. Rabbis used to have a phrase, without wine there is no joy. We come again to this picture of joy. We could translate Mary's words of they have no wine to they have no joy. Because at this precious time of life that should have been filled with everything good, the joy had run out. It symbolizes joy, but wine also symbolizes blessing. We read beautifully from Amos chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. Listen to this as we think about blessings. The days are coming, declares the Lord, where the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. 
Amos paints a picture for us of blessing, of God's blessing to his people, that the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, that the hills will flow with it. The passage describes an overflowing of the blessings of God. A thousand bottles of wine. Why? Why so much, Jesus? Why filled to the absolute brim? Because it symbolizes abundant blessing. It symbolizes joy. What we'll come to see is everything that happens in the physical here has great spiritual significance. Do you know, no matter who you are, no matter the wines that we have tasted, No matter the joys of life that we have experienced, there will come a time when the exhilaration and the excitement of life wears off. For some it may come sooner than others. Others it will come later. But often it can be when life is at its very best, the joy runs out. We're full of health. Our money is increasing. Our friends are multiplying. We have an abundance of things to eat. A lovely house over our roof. Plenty to drink. But somehow the joy, the wine fails and it just begins to lose its sparkle. And people cope with the loss of joy in the world in many different ways. Some people settle for bad days. There'll just be days that are just grim. Days when actually I might rather not be here. Days when it's just meh and I've just got to get through it. Those days when you clench your fists and you grit your teeth and you just bear it. Others can become bitter and sour. Some fight and some give up hope altogether. But eventually the wine runs out. Eventually the joy runs out. But there's good news, isn't there? Because there is a saviour called Jesus Christ who offers joy. Who offers joy in abundance. We remember, we look, the gospel message, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the gospel message. And now we look at what is the benefits, for want of a better word, of the gospel is that of knowing joy and abundant blessing. Do you know, whether your life was in a great place and you were just riding on the excitement and the thrills, or whether you are completely broken and overwhelmed by life, Jesus gives away. And the very best is yet to come. John 15, 11, a few hours before Jesus dies, I have told you this, so that you may, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus doesn't come to take away our joy, but he lifts it up. He makes our lives far more enjoyable and full of joy. And that's what we see in this story here. We have a wedding, something wonderful, but also something fairly standard, something expected. But what does Jesus do? He attends. He participates. And he avoids disaster. And then he supplies them joy. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus draws alongside us. 
He saves us from the depths of our sin. And he brings us the joy of heaven. We often reflect on those words in Isaiah 53, the man of sorrow. And of course, Jesus knew grief. But overall, the tone of Jesus' life and ministry was not one of doom and gloom, but it was one of joy. And likewise, we too will have many sorrows. There are times when God's grace will seem distant from us. But overall, our lives can be lives marked with joy. With an overflowing joy, an overflowing of abundant blessing from God himself. We have a wonderful picture of joy in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. But instead... Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Don't be full of sin, be full of joy. I want to end you just with a a lovely quote. Again, from a man who writes wonderfully in the Gospel of John R. Kent Hughes. He says this, I have found this to be true. He, Jesus is serving delicacies at my table now that I knew nothing of in my early years of Christian life. Jesus is always giving us something better and our taste is constantly being refined. This is a promise of growth. With all this talk of wine, I want to pray. I'm then going to conclude our sermon and as we do that, we're going to break bread together because it seems appropriate to do so. Let us just pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of the miraculous. We thank you that you are a God of joy and abundant blessing. We thank you that you are a God that takes us empty and fills us up. We thank you that you are a God that's grace and mercy is far more abundant than we could ever need. And as we think of those pictures of joy and blessing, We thank you. We thank you for the symbol of wine. For what it means to us. Amen.